We are It's More Than Just a Chant. We are inspirational creators, difference makers, world changers, and we are one community. Join alums Jared and Ross as they uncover stories of Penn Staters and their unique professional and personal journeys. We are Penn State, and this is Lion Legacy. All right, episode number 54 of Lion Legacy, and Ross, we got a gem tonight. Yeah, and Jared, we always say that we've got a good one, but we've got a really good one here. A while back, I think 20-some episodes ago, we spoke with Joe Batista of Penn State Hockey and Icers fame, and one of the people that he said you have to speak to is Jeff Martha. And so let alone, here we are today, we spoke with Jeff Martha. Jeff is the chairman and CEO of Medtronic, the healthcare technology company. Yeah, and Ross, this guy is someone you just want to get behind. And coming out of this episode, you're like, I am proud that he is a Penn Stater, that he is one of us. He does so much at Medtronic, but what's even more impressive is how he does it. And as you always say, we're not going to give much away in the intro. So this is definitely one from a listener standpoint that you want to listen from start to finish. That's right. So without further ado, we're going to get right into it with Jeff Martha. All right. Let's welcome Jeff Martha, a 1992 graduate with an honors degree in finance. During Jeff's time at Penn State, he played for and captained the Icers hockey team. Shout out to a previous guest, Joe Batista. Today, Jeff is chairman and CEO of Medtronic, the global leader in healthcare technology. In his role, Jeff leads the $32 billion company and its 95,000 employees to deliver groundbreaking technology solutions. Jeff is also a member of the Medtronic Foundation Board of Directors, serves as Medtronic's executive sponsor to First Robotics, participates in Medtronic's employee resource groups, and is an active member of various global business roundtables and councils. With everything going on in your world, we certainly appreciate you making the time for us tonight on Lion Legacy, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jared and Ross. I'm looking forward to this. Very excited to have you on here, Jeff. We're going to dive right in. Imagine that some people listening to the podcast here don't even know that they may have been impacted by Medtronic. Can you talk about a few of the company's innovations and solutions that reflect the mission of alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life? Sure. Maybe I'll just start with how the company was founded because it's actually a really great story. It was founded actually here. I'm in Minneapolis. That's where we're headquartered. It was founded actually in a garage in Minneapolis in, in 1949. Our founder, Earl Bakken, was basically equipment repairman at, a, at hospitals. You know, think fixing x-ray machines and things like that, anything that needed fixed in a hospital. And the, you know, he was working at the University of Minnesota's hospital, and there was a famous pediatric cardiac surgeon who had an unfortunate incident where uh, a young patient died after surgery because there was this uh, blackout that happened after this Halloween, famous Halloween storm in, in the mid-50s blacked out, you know, knocked out most of the power of the hospital. And after these very difficult procedures, these patients need their heart paced. And the pacemakers at that time were large machines that were like on a pedestal and plugged into the wall. They needed AC power. And he said, look, this was a completely unavoidable death. And can, you know, Earl, can you make me a battery powered pacemaker? And Earl went off to his lab and came up with this in like literally three weeks. And 
Within three weeks, we had a battery-powered pacemaker that was helping patients and providing that backup for patients that they needed to live. And back then, this pacemaker was pretty big. It was battery-powered, but not implanted. That was the first medical device. Consider the first medical device. Not only did it launch Medtronic, it launched the whole medical device industry. And, and that's how it all got started. And then after that, we be, learned how to implant the pacemakers. And then fast forward to 2015, we reinvented how pacemakers are even thought about. And we now, instead of having to implant a pacemaker through a surgical procedure that involves a cut down, you can actually implant these or insert these through a catheter through somebody's groin all and weave it all the way up to the heart and deploy this pacemaker in the heart without a surgical procedure. It's pretty, pretty amazing to think about that. These pacemakers last 15 years. And you said people don't realize you talk to the elderly population in particular, there's a lot of pacemakers out there. And so not only have we grown that way, we've, we've grown in terms of the breadth of conditions we treat all things, cardiology, neuroscience, diabetes, surgery, quite a wide range of of products. And the thing that we're most proud of is that we impact the lives of two patients every second. That's a pretty compelling statistic. So there's a lot of innovation to talk about. I'll highlight a few of those innovations, but it all started with that pacemaker. And even recently we've disrupted ourselves and really created a whole industry. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the origin of Medtronic. Really fascinating beginning. But I also know you're in one of the most fast-paced, disruptive industries, right? It's hard to keep up with all the innovation, the new launches, the startups being funded. I'm curious from your seat, what are some of the major trends that you expect to have an impact on the health industry in the next few years? I'll touch upon the ones, I'll start with ones that affect the medical technology industry, and then maybe I'll talk a little broader. The one that I just touched upon was, is, is miniaturization of electronics and things that used to be large and involve bigger, more invasive procedures are now tiny and can be in, implanted in patients in, in minimally invasive ways. So the miniaturization of electronics is a big one, but one that's, I think, easy for people to understand is robotics. We're seeing a huge influx of robotics in all things surgical. Even to this day, robotics are still relatively new in the grand scheme of things. There's still a lot of runway here, but it's what it's doing is starting to automate parts of procedures that that surgeons do. And down the road, I think it will think self-driving cars in the operating room. These robots will be self-driving and the impact of this, it'll democratize good surgery because today you're really highly reliant on surgeons that have world-class training to get world-class surgery. And the reality of it is we can't train enough surgeons to satisfy the world's need here. So I think robotics is a big one. We're on the beginning stages of this. I'm excited. Medtronic has a number of plays in surgical robotics and what they call soft tissue surgery. So think urology, gynecology, abdominal type of procedures. We have a robot for spine surgery. We have one for cranial, like brain surgery. So it's pretty exciting. That's a big one that we're excited to be part of. Another one is artificial intelligence. And this is impacting every industry, all healthcare, and it's really impacting our space in the medical technology area. Just one example that, you know, that I think will resonate with people, a procedure that you guys look a little younger than me, so you probably aren't at this point yet, but I think colonoscopy, right? It's a standard of care for a very avoidable cancer, colon cancer, and you're supposed to start getting these colonoscopies at age 45. It's not considered to be the most pleasant procedure. It's gotten better, but it, it is what it is. But these surgeons, there's a camera that goes, you know, where, and, and uh, 
get a little graphic here. And these surgeons are looking for polyps that are hard to pick up. They're look, looking through the camera projects onto a screen. They're looking at a lot of pink tissue. And I, you've probably never seen one of these before, but trust me, it's a lot of pink. I don't know how these guys pick out where the polyps might be. They're very indistinct and they're not something that jumps out at you. And their eyes get tired, especially if they're doing like 10 of these a day and their eyes get tired, they miss things. And we put AI in there. We've trained artificial intelligence with video from our data to find these polyps. And we're finding that surgeons actually miss maybe 50% of these. And th this can be, there's a high correlation between these polyps and colon cancer. And the AI is detecting it. That's one area where it's not replacing doctors. And that's going to be a long time away, but it makes them better. I mentioned the self-driving robots doing surgery. AI will enable that. We're not there yet, but we're, we're definitely testing these right now in our labs. And I definitely see a day in the not too distant future where you'll have self-driving robots. And this will be driven by artificial intelligence. Another one that's out in the market today is you've probably heard of atrial fibrillation or AFib. This is a growing issue for patients as per people, as the population gets older, AFib is more prevalent. It causes things, deadly things like stroke. The problem with AFib, it's really hard to pick up. And we have a device that's inserted just under the skin. It's the size of a paperclip and it's connected to your phone and into the cloud. And we monitor people for 24 hours a day for AFib. And using the data that we have at Medtronic after millions of these implants and billions of hours of ECG testing, we've trained an algorithm to pick up AFib 99% of the time, eliminate false positives because there used to be a lot of false positives sent to doctors, which became noise to them and a problem. And we used AI to eliminate these, be sensitive and specific, eliminate these false positives. And it's creating a new standard of care for AFib monitoring. So these are just a few examples. The colonoscopy one and this atrial fibrillation one, I just get, these are FDA approved products out on the market today. And the AI driving robots, that's coming soon to an operating theater near you. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. I love it. Jeff, we're going to go back a few years. You became the CEO of Medtronic in April of 2020. And I don't think there's anybody out there that'll forget what was going on in the world at that time. On top of that, you're not just the CEO. You're the CEO of a major healthcare company. So three years later, reflecting on coming into that role during, as everyone says, such an unprecedented time, what was that like? You guys are right. It was right when I was becoming CEO. Technically, I became CEO May 1st of 2020, but the transition had already happened. Basically, I was announced as president in the fall of 2019, and my predecessor was really stepping away by March of 2020. So in April, I was at the helm brand new. And I'll never forget, it was a pretty snowy day here in Minneapolis, and I was in my basement trying to get a workout in. I kept the phone on because I knew things were turning upside down. And all of a sudden I started getting all these calls on unnamed callers, but had a weird kind of look to them. And it turned out to be the White House. It turned out to be heads of state in Europe, governors from around the United States. Everybody was calling for ventilators. And we're, we're one third of the world's critical care ventilators. And that what happened that day was Governor Cuomo in New York and a CEO of the largest health system in New York got on that their Sunday a newscast, their daily newscast that they did and said, we're going to need 50,000 ventilators just for New York. And if you do the math, if you extrapolate that across the world, that's way more ventilators by, fa by factors of 100 that we have. And so everybody was scrambling. There was way more demand than supply. 
that was my first kind of real test as CEO. So that was a big one. That's a whole another story we can get to in a little bit as to what we had to do there. And also as COVID wore on, there was all kinds of other things going on in the world. And I realized that CEOs were not just business leaders anymore. People were looking to us, especially during that time, to be infectious disease experts, mental health experts, weigh in on social issues. If you remember that time, there was a lot of things going on with the killing of George Floyd and COVID, a a number of other mental health issues and social issues even beyond just a lot of social issues. So it it was was a pretty trying time. But one thing that I had that really helped me through that and helped give me the confidence and the and really the strength to make some important decisions was Medtronic has a, a mission that was written in 1962. So the, the company was founded in the mid 50s. It really took off at the pacemaker. But by 1960, we ran into trouble. We had grown too fast and, and, and spread ourselves a little thin and ran into some financial trouble. And our founder had to go take a loan from the bank. And the banker said, Earl, you really, his name was Earl Bach, and you really need to understand who you are and who you're not as a company. And so this doesn't happen again. He wrote this mission that really guides our employees to this day. It, it inspires us, it defines us, and it guides us on day-to-day decisions. And it's a pretty comprehensive mission that gets into what we do for patients and that we're a healthcare technology company and stick to areas where you have unique and worthy contributions. Always put the patients first. And it goes on talking about employees and very much ahead of its time. Having that mission, not a word has changed since 1962 when it was finalized, which is unusual. Having that mission to fall back on to provide a framework for decisions was really critical. And so I learned a number of things, just the weight and importance of, a, of the job, not just because we're a big healthcare company during a healthcare crisis, but because we have almost 100,000 employees and we affect many more jobs than just ours, all the suppliers and, and people that rely on Medtronic. And so it's a, the weight of the job, but also the privilege of it and how as long as you have a framework th- that you can think through on defines who you are as a company, what your purpose is. It really helps you see, get clarity of thought in chaotic times. I realize the importance of that. Yeah. I love how you really held on to that mission during that time and certainly want to recognize, and you talked about the ventilators during the pandemic, you actually open sourced the company's intellectual property making proprietary ventilator designs available to manufacturers around the world. We don't have a tally, of course, but that decision single-handedly must have saved countless lives there. It did. It was, look, it was a big one for us. First of all, it gets back to the mission and the mission talked about alleviating pain, restoring health, extending life for all patients. And it talked about, again, written in 1962, it talked about making a fair profit, not the most profit, but a fair profit. And look, we're a profitable company and I'm not going to deny that. And we take big risks and invest a lot in R&D and we make a healthy profit. We make a good return on that risk. But in this point in time, we thought this is a health crisis that the world has not seen for maybe ever, but certainly for a long time. And we were in a position to help. So we said, we're going to do everything. We were blessed with a healthy balance sheet. We have money we can invest. We have technology. We have a direct connection that's what's unique at one of the unique things about the medical technology industry and med tech companies like Medtronic. We don't just sell stuff to hospitals. We have a direct connection to the bedside, to the physicians. Our field team is in the OR during procedures that involve Medtronic devices and some that don't even involve Medtronic devices. And so we can actually affect change quickly. 
And so not only did we see the importance of ventilators, we said, look, we're not going to be the guys that make an extra nickel during this crisis. We're going to we're going to pour money as much much all of our resources, money into this as we can. And we ran and we increased our manufacturing capacity 10x in a very short period of time, which is unheard of. But we had some constraints that we couldn't solve by ourselves. We'll share not only the designs, but the know-how, if you can help make these. And uh, by the way, here's some specific issues we're running into scaling this more. And out of that, we got maybe 300,000 downloads from different companies looking at this. And we got calls from engineers from like, I never thought we would like SpaceX. I'm like, what, what does SpaceX have to do with this? And the next thing I'm on the phone with Elon Musk, and it turns out that's one part that that is critical that we have one supplier and there's maybe one or two suppliers in the world. Turns out uh, SpaceX makes this for their spacecraft. And if you think about it, a ventilator is a life support system. What do you need in space in a spacecraft? You need a life support system. They make that same. I never thought of it. He actually got on the phone with our engineers and with me and in the end of the day, he said, look, I think I can help. And we validated that. He donated some equipment to us. And I think maybe 10% of our ventilators during that time had this part made by SpaceX in it, which saved that many more lives. Intel helped us increase the computing power so that we can monitor these, these ventilators remotely and because there wasn't as many frontline healthcare workers available. And they certainly didn't want to go in the room with all this COVID in the air and people didn't know how to deal with that. It saved a lot of frontline healthcare workers' health. So all these things, and, it, and after the pandemic was over, we were sitting here with a better machine. Doing what was right ended up being obviously good for patients, good for healthcare systems, but it improved our reputation with key stakeholders, customers, hospitals, governments around the world. Most importantly, our, our employees were really proud. And at the end of the day, who would have thought, instead of losing our secrets, we gain seek, we gain know-how, and we have a better product. What a story. And certainly not enough thank yous in the world for that decision and what you did for the world and everyone who was battling COVID at that time. Let's go a bit deeper and actually touch on leadership. When you look back on your career, whether it be at GE Capital and then GE Healthcare, and then nine years at Medtronic before you became CEO, are there a couple career-defining or memorable moments that made you say to yourself, I'm ready to be at the helm of the leading healthcare technology company? There may be some moments where maybe... I thought maybe I could be ready, but you're never truly ready, I don't think, especially company the size and complexity of Medtronic until you've gotten into the job. But really getting oneself ready for a job like this isn't one moment. It is a career of experiences that accumulate that, that get you ready. I think back on all those weekends where you're, all those late nights, early mornings, all those weekends where I talked to someone, especially when I was younger, talking to my friends, hey, can you let's go skiing this weekend? Hey, let's go to this. I'm a, you know, as you know, a hockey fan. Let's go to the Penguins. Let's go to the Stanley Cup. Or I said, look, I can't. I'm working. It's a lifetime of our career, at least, of building up those experiences, surrounding yourself with good people. I spent my first 20 years at GE. And I remember like maybe two years after I graduated, I happened to be working on a big project for GE. And I was just a young analyst cranking Excel spreadsheets. And I was in the room though for a big decision. And I remember the CEO of the big division of GE at that time, getting all this data that I'd spent two weeks putting together and 20 minutes, he pierced through all of it and said, here's the two things that really matter. And this is what we're going to do in the situation. I'm like, how does that guy do that? And that's what I thought, that's what I need to get to someday. That clarity of thought 
those experiences that motivate you and inspire you to reach another level. But to directly answer your question, where I thought I might be ready was I was given a responsibility for about a third of the company running our neuroscience division. And it had been, it had fallen on rough times. And I was in that job for three and a half, four years. And towards the end of the tenure, Medtronic was going to highlight that group of businesses in an investor meeting. And we were getting ready for it. I look back on all the decisions we made, all the ups and downs and kind of how we had progressed the business from where it was to where it was at the time, a huge amount of improvement. And I felt we did it the right way and built a good team, made it durable, made the right investments. I was pretty proud of that. At that moment, I thought maybe one day I can lead a company like Medtronic, but uh, honestly, you're not really ready to get in it. But like I said, I'd say it's a series of, it's not one thing. It's not even one year, two years. It's, it's something you build on over, uh, over a career. Jeff, we're going to stick with the leadership topic. It's been mentioned a couple of times already. The Medtronic has about 95,000 employees throughout the world. Certainly it's impossible for you to be able to interact with each and every one of them on a one-on-one basis. But hypothetically, if we were to poll all of your employees, what would be the, what would you hope the top three traits or characteristics the employees would list when it comes to Jeff Martha? Well, what I'd hope they'd say, and then I'll tell you what I'm striving for. And there's some intersection there, but there's a little different. But what I hope they say is he's down to earth. He's relatable, he's approachable. In today's day and age, I think that's super important. I don't like this old school hierarchical kind of culture. I want to build trust with all stakeholders, especially my employees. Number two, I'd like him to say, and these, I don't know if these are in any order, but the, another one is that he cares. I'm a caring person. He cares about us as employees. He cares about our patients. He cares about communities. He cares about our shareholders, all stakeholders. He cares. And number three, I'd hope that they'd at least say, look, he's strategic. He has the experience and wisdom to kind of guide the company. And maybe someday somebody would use this as aspirational. Some would use the word visionary. But these are things you hope for. I'm not saying that they all say that. I feel good about the that he's down to earth and relatable. And I feel good about the he cares part. I, the strategic visionary part, time will tell on that. That's what I hope employees say. In myself, what I'm striving for is those things. But what I said, to run a company like Medtronic, I think you need three things. And, and any leader, I look for number one, clarity of thought. That gets back to that strategic piece. And it's not just being smart, it's, but it's clarity of thought. It gets back to that one example I just gave of that G executive pierced through all this data and figured out these are the two things that matter. So you can be smart, but maybe not a clear thinker. You, to be a clear thinker, you need to have some level of intelligence. So that clarity of thought, which comes from training and repetition, is one The other is humility. This gets back to this whole down to earth and approachable. And the third is a sense of purpose. I look for people that aren't just there to collect a paycheck or get a promotion or for their own glory, but really care about accomplishing something. You really care about accomplishing something because that will, that'll get the best out of people. That'll get you to work hard no matter what, because you know, you're on a mission. Excellent answer. Thank you. So for the listeners out there that have worked for their fair share of large publicly traded companies, myself included, and Jared as well, we've always wondered, as the CEO of a publicly traded company, how do you manage or balance the short-term quarter-to-quarter expectations, right? You've got to to speak to Wall Street every three months and tell them how you're doing. The expectations that come along with that with the longer-term vision and strategy of the company. That's a tough one to answer because I do think the answer to that question 
requires context in terms of what type of company it is and the context of Medtronic. And we're not the only one in this bucket, but is that, look, we're a healthcare company that if you, if you know the history of Medtronic, another thing, our mission's unique. The fact that we were the first and we're the biggest in med tech is unique. Our mission's probably the most unique thing, but that has led to us creating new standards of care across so many disease states. I mentioned pace, pacing for cardiac rhythm management, diabetes care. We have a insulin-dependent, usually type 1 diabetes business. Where we have technology that basically mimics a healthy pancreas, or we're getting very close to, to totally mimicking it. We're close so that these patients can live a normal life and put diabetes in the background, which left untreated dominates your day. Neurovat, you know, stroke. We have a, a, a therapy for stroke where you know we can actually use a catheter, weave it all the way up to the brain and pull out that stroke and restore blood flow to your brain. And you can, if you get to the hospital in time, you can walk out of there like nothing happened in a couple of days. It's amazing. It's, I talked about robotic robots for robotic surgery and I can, the list goes on unique neuromodulation therapy that treats Parkinson's. The list goes on and on. And so we matter to healthcare. We matter to society. So when I think about short-term and long-term, I am, I don't want to be the leader of the company or even employee of the company where we sacrifice the long-term here because we've been around for, we're celebrating our 75th birthday next year. And there's not many companies that have survived 75 years, let alone thrived and matter to society in a way that, that healthcare companies do. And so I guard that long-term and I hold my responsibility really high. And I mean that I would assume get fired before I sacrifice the long-term of the company because you'll never ever sleep again, as far as I'm concerned. So you've got, so I guard that long-term. That being said, we've got to deliver. And like you mentioned in the short term, so I guard that long-term and think long-term no matter what, even if they were going to fire me tomorrow, I would still be making long-term decisions tonight. But at the same time, you do have to deliver for shareholders and other stakeholders in the short term. And it is a pretty complicated formula. It takes a lot of thought and a lot of energy and it's there's no magic formula that I can give you on this call, but it's something we wrestle with. And one thing I found though, that gearing to the long-term and when we invest in, and and employees can see that we're investing in the long-term, investing in technology that will translate to patient outcomes, not just investing in technology for technology's sake. That is so inspiring to them that allows you to push for the short-term results. If you're always pushing for short term, you're going to lose your best people. But on the flip side, if you don't deliver on the short term, you know, you're going to lose the company. My formula, the way I think about it is point to that long term, invest in that long term. And in our world, invest in new, improving existing therapies, invest in new therapies and say, look, here's the future. Look what we can do. I just rattled off some of these things early in this call. That's so inspiring to people. And I say, look, if you want to have the right to do that. We've got to deliver for shareholders in the short term. And so that allows to push and it allows for that balance because I could say it all day long, we got to do both, but you really need your team to do this. And how do you motivate your team to do both? And it's painting that picture of the long term and tying it directly to patient outcomes and societal benefit. Boy, it inspires people to, to work extra in the short term and deliver because they want to stay in the game to deliver that long term. Wow. I so admire that approach and philosophy. So kudos to you on that. I do have a really important question. Where do you find the time 
in the intro, I spoke a little bit about your work with First Robotics, the employee research group, the business roundtables. I know you also have a family. Congratulations. Your son just graduated, I believe, from NYU. But how do you manage all the time and the demands on your schedule? It takes a lot of energy. I'm not going to kid you. I'm not going to. I'll be transparent here. It does take a lot of energy. and But because I mentioned that sense of purpose, I mentioned clarity, thought, humility, and sense of purpose. That sense of purpose is a powerful motivator and, and it gives you that energy. It's like you're running on adrenaline all the time because you have this really intense sense of purpose. So that helps. It's like I'm running on high octane gas because that I didn't have when I didn't have that sense of purpose that I have now. The other is you got to take care of yourself to maintain the schedule. My expectation is to have a, a vigorous workout every morning, get the heart rate up. And now at this age, you have to do more stretching than I used to have to do. And I'd say a six out of seven days that happens. And I, I, I believe me, I track it rigorously. And sometimes it's seven out of seven, but I'd say it's probably over six times a week, but less than seven on average, if you average it out. And that helps me keep a positive. It's like my version of meditation. It keeps my head clear my blood pressure down and, and I can fit in the suits. So that that's a big one. The other thing to kind of on the personal side is, look, you just have to close your circle a bit. I don't have time to do some of the fun things that, that socially that I'd like to. It's got, I very focus on my direct family and I do prioritize. I stay in touch with my Penn State hockey teammates, get together with them at least once a year, if not more. There's not a lot of time for other socializing and I'm a social person. So that is a little bit of a trade-off. But at the office, the other thing is you have to have a great team, all right? So you have to have a great team and you have to empower that team. And you learn, and I've had to learn this big time. And it has not, it wasn't a natural act for me to really just, not just empower, all right, but let go of some of the details and know where I need to go deep and where I don't need to go deep. And that, that takes time to figure that out. Again, that takes context. And that context changes over time. In one year, I need to go deeper on this topic. And another year, maybe go deep on this one business that needs some help. Or, but you've got to figure out where you can stay high level and really empower and where as a leader, you need to go deep and really go into more detail and play a more active role on a particular business or initiative. Those are the things. But at the office, it's really about the team and empowerment and making the right trade-offs. A lot of companies have big are big and have a lot of resources. You, you think you can do anything, but you certainly can't do everything. So you have to make the right trade-offs. And then personally, I, it's the living a healthy lifestyle. You have to have positive social interactions outside of work. For me, that's my family, my wife, and you mentioned my kids, my son, Alex, and daughter, Emily. She's a Penn State graduate, by the way. She's All right. graduated two years ago. I met my wife, Stephanie, at Penn State. Our daughter, Emily, went there. And our son, Alex, went to NYU. We're empty nesters now. And boy, I, I tell you, that's glorious. We're loving that. So let's talk a little bit about Penn State. You certainly mentioned it. We're going to put you in the Lions Den, brought to you by our friends at Lions Pride. Reminisce about your time at Penn State. And since you're a hockey alum, we'll plug the hockey fan apparel that can be found by visiting lions-pride.com. I do yeah. Lions Pride. That is, I always stop there when I go. So I'll just add to the plug. I love that store. They got some of the best there you go. apparel and they've got some unique things you can't find other places. And I know Joe Bot plays with Steve Moyer, I believe, on a hockey team or used to play with him on a hockey team there as well. There you go. It's all full circle. Jeff, how did your time at Penn State prepare you for the early part of your career and professional life? I had just a fantastic Penn State experience. From an academic standpoint, I was fortunate enough to, one, get in the honors program, 
which helped from an academic standpoint. It creates like a small school within a large school, smaller classes, extra academic support that you received. At least I did in terms of mentoring and things like that. And I got linked up with some great mentors there. One who's still there, Dr. Randy Woolrich, who was a finance professor when I was there, still there. I've stayed in touch with him a little bit. And I still remember the counseling he gave me. And actually, our assistant coach at the time, Dr. Ray Lomber, was one of the deans in the School of College in the, in the Economics program, which is in the School of Liberal Arts. He's an associate dean. And they, I got really great, not only great teachers, but great kind of mentors that academically and professionally, they helped me map out the next four years of my, my, my college career, my freshman year, including these are the types of internships you need to get. These, these are the types of companies you need to connect with now as a sophomore. And that was just, it really got me off on the right foot from, a, from an academic and eventually a professional standpoint. And then the hockey team, you mentioned that, that gave me such a sense of fulfillment and self-worth. And it taught me teamwork and resiliency and, it was just such a a great physical outlet, but mental outlet. It was just, it's just, a, it was really a great, it was my, my family within in Penn State. And I, Penn State's this huge university and I advice I give students, you get, you got to find your pocket in there, get the benefits of the large university, make sure you find your affinity group, your family within that large ecosystem. And mine was the hockey team. And Talking about hockey, we had your coach, Penn State legend Joe Batista, on the podcast a while back. He brought up your name during that podcast. I know he's a big fan of yours. Can you give us your favorite Joe Ba memory? Well, look, I don't know if he told you, but Joe Ba and I go way back before college. It's a small world. My uncle was running the Pittsburgh Penguins at the time, Paul Martha, and he hired Joe to really build out the be a liaison between the Penguins and build a youth hockey in Pittsburgh. And so I was on the amateur penguins or junior penguins where Joe was a coach. And then I ended up going to a boarding school of my last two years of high school. And Joe was there as a, as an intern. And then I show up at Penn state. And of course he's the head coach. We've remained close friends and he's been a, a friend and a mentor of mine for a long time. And a lot of great stories and funny stories I could share with you, but probably my most impactful memory was I remember my freshman year, I, my personal life, we were going through a lot. My dad's company fell on hard times. My parents were getting divorced and it was really rough. And I got some particularly rough news. I mean, I had looked, I had a great upbringing and everything and loving parents. All families go through, or most at least, sometimes go through hard times. And mine was going through a particularly hard time my senior year in high school, freshman year of college. And I remember after practice, I got some particularly bad news and Joe had found out about it and called me into his office and really was that calming voice. I was scared. And he was that calming voice that, that I realized that I wasn't alone. And, and I said, Penn State was the hockey was a family. That was a moment. And he, he, that was probably my most impactful moment. But the other thing about Joe that he taught me, and I know you guys are probably looking for a lot of dirt on Joe because there's a lot out there. I can give you some. But the other one that, that really stuck with me was we were a club team at the time. Right now, it's one of the top Division One programs 
in the country and so proud of what they've accomplished and everything. We talk about that. But back then we were a club team and he, and Joe said, we're not going to act like that. We're going to act like a division one team. We're going to run this like a division one team and you are going to act like division one players and I'm going to work you like division one players. And he, he taught me how you show up is who you are. And it's about mindset. And because of that mindset, as you guys know, that that club team will win some record amount of club championships and really set that top tier of club hockey is, you know, you're bordering on division one talent there. And clearly we weren't division one. I, I know that I would never, but it really laid the foundation for that division one team that we have today. And Joe's kind of mindset and that, that kind of, it, it taught me so much is don't let anybody put you in a box. You have those aspirations and the way you show up, those, you can make those aspirations happen. And that he taught me that I saw him in weak moments where there was tough times. He stood tall always. And I, I that, that just stuck with me. Jeff, we're going to stick with hockey. And as an Icers alum, what does it mean to you to have that D1 program there at Penn State right now? Jeez, I can't even tell you. It's so much pride, first of all. One thing about Penn State hockey that I think is really unique, and I've gotten to know a lot of Division One programs around the country. We have a lot of former Division One professional hockey players in the med tech industry. A lot of them work for Medtronic. And the Penn State hockey alumni is really tight. All the way back to the original Division One team in the 30s, then it became a club team again in the 70s. The last guy who was there in the 30s, he passed away a few years ago, but he was coming back to alumni weekend when he was 95. Wow. Getting out there on the ice with a leather helmet, it was crazy. <laughs> a very close knit group of people. And I can tell you, we are all so proud of the program's success and not just what they're accomplishing on the ice, but how they're doing it. This is a good group. I've gotten the pleasure to know many of the players since they went Division One. Some of them are still good friends of mine, even though there was a bit of an age gap there. We're good friends. And the quality of people coming out of that program are just such high. They're good, good people. Great hockey players, great pe- even better people. The coach, Guy Gadowski, is a great face of the program. And it just it's a lot of pride, I'd say. And then the second, boy, is it fun to watch them. It's fun to go to the games and that the roar zone, that beautiful arena. It's fun. And sitting here in Minneapolis, the home of Gophers hockey, when Penn State first announced Division One, boy, a lot of people here in Minnesota were not happy about the forming of the Big Ten and pulling the Gophers out of the division they were in and, the, and disrupting those rivalries. And they blamed Penn State, said a lot of nasty things. It was very nice to see, gratifying for me to see Penn State win and have early success against Minnesota. But now I've shifted my mindset. I'm more of a Big Ten fan, and I I like the Gophers too, and I love to see the two teams play. But it's just a lot of fun. And the quality, last thing, the quality of the hockey players in Division I right now is so high. It's so amazing to see these players playing a D1 hockey game against each other, and then when the season's over, they're going to the NHL and playing in the pros right away, playing in the playoffs even. And it's so fun to watch. And it's and like I said, but for me, Penn State, how they're doing it, the quality of people they're producing is just very, it makes me very proud. Yeah. And like you were extremely proud that Joe Ba got his dream come true. That was great to see. We were there when they were selling out the Greenberg Ice Pavilion. And I know he always had this dream of D1 and there's no better person in my, in our minds as well for Joe Bot to take that program D1, which was so nice for so many years. Oh, yeah. I told you, he, he, he told us that you got to act like a D1 program. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna operate one, I, like one, and I expect you to act like one. And 
And look, he stuck with that and had that perseverance and that vision. And he's got great people skills and marketing skills. Was able to, and thank God for the Pagulas and their, them, they come on at the scene with the, their support, their financial support, as well as moral support. But Joe's been the constant through it all. And it's very rare that you get to see your dream come through in such a tangible way like he has. And it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, like you said, more deserving guy. Completely agree. Toughest question of the podcast, favorite Penn State memory? That's actually an easy one for me. I met my wife there, I told you. Good good uh, answer. Yeah. Good answer. And Always Stephanie, a good answer. I'll never forget it. It's like the, that scene in The Godfather where Michael Corleone's in Sicily and he sees that woman, I can't remember, and he just falls instantly in love. That's not a little bit, I don't mean to sound corny, but that's what it was. I saw her in e- Econ 101, giant class. Saw her across the room and said, I have to meet her. She's beautiful. Freshman year? Freshman year. Wow. Now, she didn't go out with me till sophomore year. It took some work. <laughs> but that that moment, and I remember pass, passing her in the you know, on campus a few times before she finally, I had the guts to go up to her and talk to her and ask her out. And then she turned me down a few times. But I kept coming back. And here we are over 30 years later, married with kids. It's it's amazing. So that that was my favorite moment. But look, there's a lot. There's a lot. But I, right after that, that, there's a gap. But after that, we won the 1990 National Championship. And that was really a big moment for the program. And it was the first that set off a number of club championships. But we were the first. I'm proud. As, much, as, as, as lucky as these D1 players are now in that beautiful rink, they did miss something in the old Greenberg rink and the culture there and how crazy it was. It may not be as fancy as Pagula is for sure, but there was something that, as you mentioned, it was a crazy place to play and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I really wouldn't. All excellent answers. Thank you. Jeff, if you could go back and visit with yourself as an 18 year old freshman about to step foot on the university park campus, what advice would you share? I would say, find that that purpose. Look, I graduated in 1992. The generation at that time, many of us weren't thinking that way. I think we were conditioned, at least I was, to get out and get a good job that, you know, make money. And your accomplishment was getting promoted and the title and things like that. That played a little bit, I think, too much of a role versus anchoring your efforts around accomplishing something that matters to you. Uh, whatever that is, it doesn't have to be healthcare. It could be something, whatever, where you have a sense of a passion around it. And I, it took me probably 15 years to really figure that out. And I thought I was, I had a purpose, but it wasn't a purpose. It wasn't a real sense of purpose. I was committed to winning and excelling, but that's different than having a sense of purpose. And I, I would counsel yourself. You don't have to have that day one, but at least look for it and at least acknowledge that maybe what you were doing now may not be that. And be open for new adventures and new ideas until you find that. And I, that I was 15 years late. One thing that I, I, I advice that I had to give myself that I think I did a good job of is do make time for your friends and family and have some fun along the way. Don't take yourself too serious. You get stressed out and everything. Oh, got overly stressed in a number of occasions. And, but make time for family and friends and have fun. And like I said, don't take yourself too serious. Yeah, that's a common answer actually on this podcast is just having that level of perspective. Yeah. Along the advice lines, if you find someone in Minneapolis that is considering Penn State, what do you tell them? Why should they go there? Look, it is Happy Valley. They call it that for a reason. College is a special time, and Happy Valley is just a fun place. And it's a little bit of a bubble, and I love going back. I love going back and going to hockey games and things, but just like being on campus. 
hockey games are part of it, but just being on campus and going to the different, the bookstores, the diners and the restaurant, all of it. I love it. And it's just, I think it's a great culture. People are down to earth. And I'd say there's something there for everybody. There really is. You just need to find it. For me, hockey and the honors program, but there's something for everybody. There's clubs of all kinds. And I find it's a, it's it's just an inclusive environment overall. And the other thing I'd say is that's maximize those four years. But when you get out, boy, there's a large and loyal alumni that will bend over backwards to help you out. And I think people underestimate that. or don't really feel when you are an alumni, alumnus, and you start to feel that and hopefully that you're leveraging that and, and taking advantage of that and also paying that back and helping others. There's other schools that I see that, that kind of, but I haven't seen too many that have the size scale and just fanatical commitment to each other as Penn State alums. That, that's what I say. And, and also it's hey, great place. It's a great hockey school now, in addition to being great in the whiteouts. I've never seen anything like it. And when I was there, they didn't have the whiteouts like this. The whiteouts are amazing. You may not need to be a football fan at all, but it's still an experience worth seeing is this whiteout. But you don't need to be a student to do that. But it's nice to be a student and experience that as a student. 100%. You mentioned earlier that you still see your hockey buddies from time to time. Are there any other ways that you still feel connected to the university today? Well, sure. One is, that, like I said, the hockey team and alumni yep. weekend. It's always something that I look forward to. And I stress out about it a little bit, too, because if you go out there and have a bad, alum, a bad alumni game, you hear about it the rest of the year. You do. And if you have a good one, you can just use that the rest of the year. Trust me. I know some guys that had a good alumni game and then never skate again because they just want to end on that note. Go out uh, on top. But yeah, there's that. And just the athletic department in general. I, I, I stay in touch with the, the athletic department and I am very interested in sports and the impact of sports on people's lives and student athletes. And so my job keeps me from getting too involved, but I, I do get a little bit involved. And, and then I'm on the board of the College of Liberal Arts, like an advisory board, because I, I want to be a little bit closer to the students. And I wish I could actually spend more time on that. I, I miss some of the meetings because I'm traveling, but it, uh, it allows me to stay in touch with some of the students. And I do some from time to time. I, I get invited to a lecture too. Uh, Dr. Randy Warwich invited me to his investment class. I really do enjoy it. I do actually some guest lecturing at other universities as well for MBA and postgraduate work. So I do enjoy being around students because that you believe it or not, you learn from them. We have exactly 391 interns this summer in, in wow. the US and Medtronic, and that's just in the US. And we had a big meeting with them the other day, and I was telling them how excited I was to meet with them. One, they give me a lot of energy, but two, their questions are very informative and I learn a lot from them. So they came to hear from me, or maybe they just came because they had to come. I'm not sure, but they were there. <laughs> their questions are very informative in terms of what people are thinking. And cause they're just, they're not afraid to ask anything. It's called ask me anything they call it. And they really, they take you up on the anything part. <laughs> That's great. I must say there are so many wow moments from this podcast. You led off with two patients per second impacted by Medtronic. You talk about robotics miniaturization. But really the wow moment, I think, for us is less about what you do and really how you do it. And you honor the past. You're committed to the mission. You're focused on the future. And you empower your people. And I know there's a great sense of pride for both Ross and myself that you are part of this Penn State family. 
and that you continue to impact so many people throughout the world, not only from the Medtronic standpoint, but just from your leadership standpoint as well. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me on. And I'm sorry I didn't dish more on, on Joe, but <laughs> I do feel like there's a long line of people that dish on him. And so I don't want to pile on, but I did really enjoy the time here. I believe you, I'm proud to be part of the, the Penn State alumni and really what I like to call the Penn State family. That's great. We're certainly proud of Joe and proud of you as well. And we always end every podcast with, we are Penn State. Lion Legacy is a Baruta production. If you enjoy this Labor of Love podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it if you would subscribe and write us a review on your favorite podcast platform.